Joining me on today's episode of the Anthroeducation Podcast is Dr. Kurt Schutte. Uh, Kurt is a PhD in biomedical sciences with a specificity in biomechanics, and he is the creator and CEO of RunEasy, which is a gait analysis uh, technology and software that I've been utilizing myself for, um, I would say, over the past six to eight months now. Um, in the clinic with a variety of athletes and uh, really digging the technology and uh, Kurt's wealth of knowledge. We get into a lot of topics, but this uh, podcast in particular touches on three of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to gait analysis and uh, who better to explain it than uh, a guy that has a PhD in biomechanics and uh, developed run uh, gait analysis technology. So uh, without further ado, Kurt Shuda. All right, joining me on today's episode is, uh, would you go by doctor or do you just go by Kurt Schutte? Because I know you're a PhD, so I, I don't know how yeah. that's handled um, non-stateside. <laughs> so I'll let you, and right. I, should I address you as doctor? Uh, you can, but just say PhD specifically. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm not doctor, doctor, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> the research and doctor. C- <laughs> and a CEO. So um, as you heard in the bio, um, Kurt is also the CEO of RunEasy and uh, one of, if not the main developers of the tech there. So um, first of all, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for us. Uh, really nice opportunity. Um, yeah, really enjoy chatting about this and uh, looking forward to uh, brainstorming and uh, yeah, telling more about the running game. So before we dive into all the technical whiz bang fun stuff, give me a uh, I don't know. It doesn't have to be that brief, but give me a background on like, how'd you get into uh, biomechanics? How'd you get into running? And then why did you end up developing RunEasy? Yeah, sure. It actually started back when I was uh, an intern in uh, physical therapy. And um, I think, first of all, I got passionate about the, more the orthopedic stuff and then more about the chronic uh, rehabilitation and how the nature of running injuries is is specifically can come back you know out of nowhere it's very uh um the onset is very difficult to understand sometimes and i found that i just got super curious about how biomechanics and how gait analysis plays a role um in injury development and uh you know back then we were always uh, looking at ways in which we can try and investigate and how we look at the the na- you know look at, look at uh, using our naked eye how we can analyze running gates and um I guess the passion just started there and understanding what, how and why forces travel through a body and um, understanding what, yeah, what is the cause and effect between, you know, modifiable biomechanical factors, factors and uh, how these are playing a role in either developing an injury or preventing. Um, and that took me through to my research where, um, yeah, I got kind of pulled into the research because I realized that there was a lot of gaps in our knowledge. And to a certain extent, we, we've learned a lot in the industry. We know how to uh, make good um, assumptions and estimations about how running gates can be linked to certain types of uh, uh, forces and injuries. But I, f- I could really identify that there were a lot of gaps in the knowledge. And uh, that's, that's where my science pulled me into uh, the, you know, what, the research side of it, what's happening you now. Why, why are we getting injuries? And there, the hot topic at the time was barefoot running and, and how uh, changing a foot strike pattern based on your running foot, foot strike, um, based on yeah, your, your, how the, there's a kind of a relationship 
for interaction between your footwear and your running style and injuries. And uh, that kind of got me into the biomechanics even further and uh, took me to conferences. And I got to present at you know, the ACSM Congress uh, in Indianapolis and uh, among some of the, the top experts in the field and just grew the biomechanics passion from there. Uh, to an extent where we realized that there's also uh, a missing component when it comes to practical tools that we could use in the field. And it doesn't always help to have to send your athletes and your patients to a sophisticated research lab to get a full comprehensive analysis um, if you really want to know what all the details are going on. And we really wanted to close that gap. That's where the idea of Ranisi came along and building the t a wearable technology that you can get that same biomechanical or to a certain extent really good uh, overview of biomechanics uh, in the practice or outside on the track where your athletes are actually training where they're getting those injuries so yeah yeah and i will attest to this so i uh stumbled across run easy on social media and i actually you know kind of reached out so i was the instigator of this whole thing but i have been looking for you know running assessment technology. When I went to chiropractic school, Optigate um, had given some technology to Logan uh, College where I went. And so I got to use that. And then, you know, I was looking at everything from GPS or GPS based uh, drones to follow people with, you know, just different so we can get them in a natural setting because we know that there are differences, yeah. you know, treadmill versus non treadmill, just based on what they're used to, not just the differences in the treadmill. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I'll, you know, give you kudos to you and your team that I mean, you guys have basically packaged like a, as best as we can, because yeah, there have been other run monitors that go on shoes and things like that, but basically package a force plate into something that's worn on the athlete that you can wear both in clinic and outside of clinic, which is the amazing part the, the remote, you know, send them out for a run, collect the data, download it when you get back. Um, and we've been using it quite a bit here and it's, um, there's two things I really like the tech by itself, but also the ease of use of parameters. You don't get overwhelmed with data, right? There's four main yeah. metrics and now there's going to be a new metric. So um, for those that are the uninitiated, can you just go over the four metrics real quick and then maybe uh, talk a little bit about the new one that's coming up? Yeah, sure. So the four yeah, primary metrics that we look at is uh, firstly impact loading. And we're looking at now impact in terms of uh, how the shock is, is being absorbed by the legs. So it's the magnitude of the, the impact shock. And we also look at the time components of the impact. So that's the second metric. So it's how long that impact is being absorbed uh, from the moment your foot strikes the ground. It could be a heel strike, middle foot strike, full foot strike, until it reaches your pelvis. And so that time element really gives, an, gives another um, dimension to impact absorption, how quickly, uh, how actively are you absorbing that impact? And then we also look at a compensatory metric. Uh, so, you know, the pelvis plays a big responsibility in uh, aligning the body in terms of also uh, absorbing shock and also in terms of control, coordination. And we look at a dynamic instability metric, uh, which we researched uh, during my PhD. And we found that it really indicates a lot about how you are relating to fatigue, you're compensating, uh, and so it's, that's the third one is dynamic instability. And uh, the fourth one is, you know, we know it's more spatial temporal. Um, well, fourth and fifth is like it's uh, ground contact time. We know that how long each foot is on the ground. And we combine that spatial temporal information with, with running cadence, which is an often uh, used metric 
to uh, modify a running gait to see how that will affect your forces and injuries. So those are the fourth and fifth kind of coupled together. And we're really excited because we're going to bring out a global running quality score, which basically aggregates all of these metrics into ones and also looks at uh, not just the absolute measures, so like how high your impact is or how quickly your impact is being absorbed, but also taking into account these asymmetries between the left and the right leg and summarizing it into one score that you have between a zero and a hundred so that you can really identify your overall quality. And at a quick glance, you can know, okay, has my overall quality improved or not? And if it has changed, why? Like, where's the weak link? Uh, and if you have a weak link, what can we do about it? So yeah, that's a brief summary of what, uh, what, what we're measuring. It's not a lot, but we really distilled from a lot of kinematic and a lot of kinetic data. We funneled it down into what, first of all, was relevant. And second of all, what was validated, that we could actually get reliable results from the lab. And thirdly, that it's meaningful. That you, you, you can you can apply it in clinical practice in some way. Yeah. Well, and uh, for somebody that you know, I teach uh, a big component of what I teach is running gait analysis. So, like you said, looking at people with kind of this penumbra, right? That you're looking at the general quality of a runner is actually, in my opinion, probably about all you can pick out with your naked eye right? It's like the general quality. You literally yeah. will get fooled. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've watched somebody run and then you take them to slow-mo and you're like, oh, that's not what I saw at all. <laughs> um, yeah. And then even when you take it to slow-mo, you have parallax of the cameras, you're in 2D instead of 3D. And like, you just, it's not the same. So again, it's really good to have just bare bones metrics that A, as a clinician you can use, but then also uh, fairly easy to communicate to the patient or the athlete and then even easier, as you said, um, maybe not a pure objective measure, but the run quality score gives them a gauge of which way are things going, right? Uh, better, worse um, over time uh, with, you know, from season to season, if I have a, you know, high school runner that's going cross country, indoor, outdoor, um, things are going to change. And sometimes, you know, I would imagine that we may not always see things change for the better. And that's actually normal. I mean, if you're going to be a yeah. three season runner, like, you know, and maybe we set up parameters for like, we just don't want to see it go this low or if it gets, you know, to this, you know, uh, red lines over here, something we're going to pay attention to that. So just something to add on that is more, as you said, validated and objective instead of just looking at somebody run or what's even worse is the subjective input of the runner of, yeah, I'm feeling okay, X, Y, Z. We just know that's, you know, that changes hour to hour, day to day for sure. Um, yeah. You had mentioned a couple key things that AU have taken into the data pool for Run Easy, but that get talked about a lot in running gate analysis and just running overall. If you open up Runner's World, you're going to read about, you know, uh, cadence and symmetry and maybe not often talked about is impact um, in like the layperson, but from, you know, you and I's perspective, impact, <laughs> I mean, for a long time, it's just been talked about as like the bane of injuries. Uh, so we thought it would be a good idea today to just kind of like tackle these based from your input, from the data you've gathered from, you know, professional experience, your PhD thesis, uh, working on run easy. So the first one we want to tackle is the concept of perfect symmetry. Uh, obviously you're looking at symmetry, right? You're looking at, yeah. uh, coronal plane shift. You're looking at, you know, impact magnitude, left, right, things like that. So first of all, should, what should we expect in terms of <clears throat> normalized symmetry 
in those four metrics? Yeah, yeah. So I think the whole concept of symmetry is uh, the whole construct concept, how do you want to shape it, is uh, super interesting in how we go about making clinical decisions based on a threshold, you could say. We're always searching for a comfortable threshold of what's good and what's bad. Um, and there's a couple of elements to this that I'd like to discuss mm -hmm. in that we came, came up, you know, found through our research and as well as, you know, through testing, you know, hundreds of athletes. Um, and the first is, you know, we, we typically, if you're looking at, uh, we often like to draw, draw conclusions based on things that we already have tested or asymmetries that we feel comfortable with, like a strength asymmetry of uh, a 10% is what we, you know, we, we strive for. Nothing, nothing more than that, you know, rule of thumbs, right? Um, and first of all, what we realized was that, you know, when we aggregated all our healthy data, so we took, took away all the, you know, injured or uh, symptomatic uh, runners, that you can have a very high, you could say very high, you can have quite high asymmetries that are asymptomatic. In other words, there's no necessarily, not necessarily a problem or an injury, uh, but that zero percentage that we always try, like perfect symmetry we're trying to get between, you know, bilateral between left and right limbs um, is maybe, you know, is something that is, is a bit of a, not a myth, but it's something we should necessarily strive for. Uh, because there can be a certain degree of of healthy asymmetry that not necessarily represents an injury. Um, and what we've done is we've 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 per each metric that we measure, we actually have a, its own data driven benchmarks. Uh, in other words, we we aggregated all those hundreds of runners together, and we found that um, you can have a healthy range or a typical normal range of asymmetry can go beyond ten percent even. In, in terms of a zone rather than just a defined threshold. Um, and, and yes, we, we, we zone these into green and yellow and orange and red, but it, it's, it can go up to, you know, you know, 10, 12%, 13% in certain metrics. Um, and that's, it's, yeah, it's firstly, it's data driven. And, uh, secondly, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's not just looking at a specific threshold. It's being able to kind of gauge where on the continuum you are in. Um, and where each individual kind of, uh, where's, what's, what's the wiggle room for each individual, uh, runner or, or, uh, or athlete. Well, and can you, uh, discuss real quick when, uh, you know, it's, I don't know how much of this can be pulled directly from the data, right? This has to be history and all these things, but kind of explore the concept of, well, do we see more asymmetry based on dominance, right? That they're going to mm -hmm. favor a side that's a, a better option or offloading due to injury or weakness. Have you guys picked up any central theme there? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. Excellent point. So there you have, yeah, you have just, first of all, if you look at asymmetry, you can say, well, what is the asymmetry percentage as a score? But the direction of the asymmetry is something really, really interesting and, and not so straightforward, like you mentioned. Um, sometimes what we notice is that it depends uh, on the compensation strategy and the injury that the runner has or coming back from. Uh, like you said, unloading is a typical type of asymmetry where you have lower impact, for example, on the side where there's an injury. And we, we kind of link that more to a protective avoidance gate pattern where it could be, and often it's subconscious. And that's the interesting part about it is that um, it can happen. We, we had a, a young, a young middle distance athlete where he went out for a run 
And after about 20, 30 minutes, he started feeling pain in his calf muscles. Uh, he started to get, you know, a bit of a strain going on. And what we really we could see immediately from that point was that there was a shift, a shift from impact off of that. That's, that's the side of where the, where the calf was there. And he was not even aware of it, but he was subconsciously, you know, unloading that leg, uh, a compensation pattern, which you could say is, uh, natural compensation. It's, it's good to see, like, the body is, is smart enough to, to be able to figure out that stuff. But if it persists, and this is what we see is that the, the persistent overloading or overloading of the healthy leg, uh, can result in a new, <laughs> in a new overuse injury. So that's where you can get the overload injuries coming, the Achilles tendinopathies, you know, the shin splints, mm-hmm. uh, the patellar pain. Um, and then when you look at asymmetry score, you can't just look at it at face value. You really have to, understand the history of of that athlete and be like okay what how many previous injuries have you had because you could be offloading or overloading uh depending on where those injuries which side of the injuries are coming from well and we've all heard you know that previous injuries are the greatest predictor of future injuries and it's not the same you know locale it's just because of this and it's obviously i mean it's kind (laughs) of You know, you got 52 cards in a deck, 52 ways to represent, you know, compensation and offloading, um, unloading. But the cool, one of the cool things that you kind of breezed over there about run easy is the fact that like, this is, and maybe I just don't know the first thing that I've seen where we can send somebody out on a run or put them on a treadmill for an extended period of time and actually see that kind of neuromuscular efficiency breakdown. Um, which you and I have talked a little bit about how that correlates to other things like, you know, aerobic capacity or VO2 max, but that's where I get really interested because how many times have you heard a runner in the clinical setting say, you know, it's always at mile five or it's, you know, when I hit a 60 mile volume week, that's when stuff starts to fall apart. And now you can actually track that rather than just being like guessing, well, what's happened at mile five? Well, you know, we have a massive, you know, uh, impact magnitude goes through the roof on the right and things like that. So I think it's very cool to have over time versus just put them on the treadmill, which again, people will fake their gait. They'll make it try, you know, be as perfect as possible. We're not usually yeah. somebody yeah. run for an hour or two in the clinic, um, for a variety of reasons. So there's a lot of, it's a Swiss army knife of, you know, gait assessment in the clinic because you can, I mean, I can have somebody go out and run for as long as I want and, you know, say, well, just I'll look at the data later. I don't even have to, you know, go over it with them right then if I don't want to. Yeah. Um, yeah. So symmetry, we're kind of, whatever we want to call these misconceptions, I wouldn't say miss, but misconceptions that symmetry may not be what we're seeking, but if it goes too far outside the bounds of normal, then we have to explore, well, what is the compensation at hand, right? So we still have some clinical detective work to do based on the data, right? Um, so the next one, which I would say is probably the most popular thing to talk about of running coaches and runners, and you see it represented in like Garmin data and stuff like that is cadence, right? That we've seen all this stuff about optimal cadences and how shifting cadence can be a directive of changing gait or, you know, changing impact. Um, So let's go through this one a little more step-by-step. Is there, from your data um, in your study, is there an ideal cadence? Because this is something we hear all the time, that there's an ideal cadence just overall. So is that a myth or misconception, or is there there an ideal cadence? Yeah, I think the concept of ideal cadence, I think, is 
True. I think definitely there's an ideal cadence. Uh, it's about what is the ideal cadence for you and for me and for each individual rather than this, you know, general uh, catch-all, you know, that kind of uh, one-size-fits-all approach of everybody should increase their cadence by 5% or 10%. Well, first of all, everyone should increase it and everybody should increase it by an X amount. Um, what we see through the data is that, um, you know, everybody responds differently to uh, how, well, they respond differently to increasing or, cha or changing their cadence. And there are, you know, there are good studies, really good studies that have, have shown that, you know, majority of people do reduce their impact with higher cadence. But what we do, what we also see, what what you don't see from those studies is the individual responses. So we get to see like the the mean standard deviation and the changes. Um, but if you were to maybe plot each individual, you might see that some people responded really positively, some people not at all. Maybe some even even slightly negatively or negatively responded to it. And what we see with Runeasy uh, is is that because you're able to test so quickly how someone would respond, so you would go. Uh, Use your preferred cadence, not use a slightly higher cadence and a slightly lower cadence. Um, you know, the first time we came up, we, we actually thought like, hey, so is this an anomaly of some sort? <laughs> um, how can uh, some people, you know, well, a certain person, you know, actually have um, no change in their impact when they increase the cadence or some person, some people really decrease or uh, increase the, uh, their impact? Um, and that's when we started realizing like, yeah, it's, comes down to t testing each individual's response. And um, there's some things we can take from the literature uh, as, you know, that we, that, we, that we try to simplify and use in practice as easy as possible. But we also see that some things need to be tested. And Cadence is a really nice example. Uh, I mean, if you were to read any blog post from, you know, Runner's World to, you know, any book, any, you know, and you the, the common denominator is like, of you know, change your cadence, increase your cadence, and you'll reduce your impact and you'll reduce your injury. But we have a tool that measures the output of that, the impact. And yeah, we see that it's not, it's, it's not the case. Uh, not everybody responds positively. So that begs the question, are we doing our best in practice by you know, suggesting the same cue to everybody? Or should we be a little bit more uh, objective in our thinking in our, in our, um, or more experimental in our approach? Uh, to to find out what is working best for each individual, rather than um, yeah, go by a, a gross assumption in some to some regard. And I'm a obviously a running nerd, so I follow a lot of you know prolific coaches, uh, you know, via social media and stuff. And you'll see a lot of dogmatic approaches where there's just an idealized, you know, like 170, you know, beats per minute for cadence, and then you'll see a bunch of approaches to get athletes within that realm. And I mean, like you said, it's kind of an N equals one approach, which we don't want to say that you have to approach every patient as an individual, but then you still kind of get this generalized view of like, yeah, sometimes we do want to change things. But like you said there, I mean, there's anthropomorphic kind of measures we need to take into account people's running history, how fast they're running, uh, how, how fast they're in. I mean, one. all these yeah, things yeah. change and we see, I mean, I've heard you know, I'm big into trail running. I've heard professional ultra runners. Uh, I remember Jeff Browning in a podcast saying, well, you know, all my injuries changed when I started like, really focusing on my cadence. And it's like, 
So then people will hear that and think, well, cadence is the thing. Well, then again, if we tested Jeff Browning, maybe we see that things change because of his cadence, right? It's yeah. not just that cadence is magical. It's what it shifts within the, you know, um, maybe it changes symmetry, maybe, you know, by shortening his stride and upping his cadence, all of a sudden he becomes more symmetrical. There's less impact. All these things occur and we need to think like second and third order instead of cadence fix all. Um, Cause again, we just want people to use things that are efficient. I, maybe it's benign. Maybe there are, if we up our cadence, there's less negative and only positive. And it's just become something yeah. that reduces efficiency. I don't know. Um, yeah. We have mentioned impact like 15 times <laughs> uh, <laughs> due to symmetry, <laughs> due to cadence. Yeah. So this is really the biggest thing I wanted to dive into today. Um, you guys have a measure of impact magnitude. Um, you know, we're looking at ground contact time, which has always been highly, I don't know if correlated or associated as the word in the in the data of like what we're looking for with uh ground contact time but first of all you know for a long time in the literature it was increased impact increased prevalence of injuries is that still the case is that what the evidence is telling us right now yeah and that's a great great question i think there's there's mixed evidence there's definitely mixed evidence and again, it's the, the conclusion, you know, it, it depends on how you look at it. I think there's a couple of different factors here. Um, and, you know, in a, in a general note, we say, yeah, higher impact equal higher injuries. Uh, but more from when you look at it from a cumulative loading perspective, right? So you can measure your total training loads if you want to. Uh, the, the traditional way is through mileage and through, uh, yeah, your distance and how, how many, how many, mi how many uh, miles are you clocking up every week? Um, and how re uh, how um, well are you at building that chronic load up versus acute uh, spikes in the load? And um, often we use that mileage as like as, as the way to identify training or chronic loads. Um, but it's you know if you and I were to run next to each other, I I, I would say like you know if you look at break it down to impact per step, and if we were to run side by side and uh, go for a, you know, a ten mile run, same speed at the end of the run. Would accumulate every impact from all the steps. So now we even had the same cadence. Um, and I had, you know, maybe a 20 or 30 percent, uh, a higher impact per step. Then my cumulative loads are also going to be, you know, a lot, a lot higher. And, and, um, and that's where measuring, measuring the impact on the body rather than just, um, yeah, using a general mileage load is, is something that we say, okay, well, um, that's where the injuries can develop. Um, but it's not just the magnitude of the impact that's important because you can also tolerate a certain amount of impact depending on your load tolerance. And it's that balance between how much load is on the body versus what your body is able to tolerate is the big question. And we're measuring external load. And so that's why you need to be able to link it to how are you able to tolerate that load. And to a certain extent, what are we measuring? Because it's it's an impact measure on the pelvis, and it's uh, a response to how you're landing and how you and how impact is being traveled. And by the time it reaches your uh, your pelvis, it's a center of mass. It is also has an element of low tolerance to it. Um, but you have to look at yeah that that balance between load and low tolerance. And obviously, when you exceed that. I think the, the risk the risk of injury is much higher when your tolerance is lower than the load that you're bearing. Um, 
But what we came across is it's not just the, impact, the magnitude that's important. It's how quickly that impact is being absorbed, which mm-hmm. is telling you a lot of information. That impact duration. Well, let's dive into that for a second because uh, you and I have talked about this a little bit previously, but you know, another, like along with cadence, the other thing that we'll see is like, you know, these cues like run soft, run quiet, like all of the, it's like all hands on deck to reduce impact or what we would, you know, facsimile for impact, right? Like hearing somebody yeah. being loud or, you know, them complaining of certain things like shin splints and stuff like that saying, oh, this is an impact based injury. But like you said, it's, um, I think you use the word tolerate, but I would also say kind of, you know, what's, I really like the fact that you're saying, well, there's this chronic, you know, impact load, like, you know, they've used that in European soccer league as a, a standard for how much, you know, volume they're getting over a week, right? They're going to yeah look at this stuff and be like, Hey, this player, they did the same amount of work, but there's or same amount of time, but there's more impact. He's actually done sooner. So that he's done this week. So there's a chronic load that you're using as a parameter for training, which I love versus just, you know, volume or time or whatever. But then that ability to attenuate impact is a big deal because we need to harness, you know, uh, ground reaction forces to actually propel us forward. So kind of dive into the topic of how it can hinder versus help if somebody just goes after reducing impact versus how we use the ground to propel us. Like, how do we suss yeah. that out where we're not just making somebody worse by trying to reduce impact? Yeah, indeed. And that's and, and that's where we come across with this impact duration metric, which is like how you dampen it and how you re, are able to reuse that energy in a sense. Um, and what we see, we work with a, lot of, a range of runners, you know, on Olympic level in Belgium, down to recreational. And we see that the the, the runners that are at going towards Olympic level are able to, you know, flatten the curve. And, and we, you know, we use that, you know, post the pandemic kind of uh, analogy, <laughs> you know, dampening, dampening the curve, uh, flattening the curve. It's not just about the magnitude. It's about how you're able to delay, delay that impact to a point where you're able to reuse that energy and, um, or you reuse that impact to propel you as well and 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 we believe that that there's a strong link there between yeah low like um, uh, the load duration so how, how quickly that load is absorbed and the ability to to use that load to propel yourself forward and um you know that's why it's not just looking at how big the load is but you know how quickly can you uh, or how quickly is that impact being absorbed and can you can you delay it to uh, delay it long enough that you can actually reuse that um, you know, in a positive effect, and uh, the exact mechanisms behind that, you know, is something we're still researching and still figuring out. But it's 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 something that we're onto, and I think it's a really interesting um, ability to be able be able to measure it and see how it differs between different runners. Well, and whether it's right or wrong, what I've kind of started leaning towards, which I've always been more of the lean, being a rehab professional, that. You know, if I want to get somebody out of the mindset of, you know, maybe they were coached like, hey, I just got to run quiet. And that's maybe it has helped them. They're like, man, this really helps my reduce my Achilles, you know, tendinopathy symptoms. What yeah. I was kind of telling them is that just because your Achilles hurt or doesn't hurt anymore doesn't mean that you're a more efficient runner. So then we could say, well, what are some of the the variables that help you reduce impact? It's everything from generalized strength to efficient biomechanics to muscular coordination or motor control. That's all yeah. we're working yeah. on in the a rehab yeah. setting, right? Or all these things. So it comes back to, well, yeah, some people are just, they have 
higher kinesthetic awareness and better motor control. So they're going to be a better runner, right? So their mechanics are cleaner. They can generate force better. If you don't, you can work on a lot of other things instead of just running to improve your running. And, you know, as simple as like single leg balance symmetry, which we, you know, we know is very important. Um, so like you said, it's kind of the unknown of like, well, exactly how are people handling that impact duration better? And what all does that come down to? But I think we, we inherently know, cause that's stuff that we've been working on for decades, but now we're putting metrics behind, you know, it's not just ground reaction forces or impact into the ground. It's well, how well do you handle it? How, how's that change over time? Um, all these metrics become more important, especially I'm sure at a higher level, um, that's where, you know, a one or 1% difference is going to, could be a huge difference, difference between, you know, bronze and silver, silver and gold, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What is, what's a chat, what is a challenge that, uh, you've heard practitioners face when they actually now have data that maybe challenges some of the stuff that they thought, if you guys ever run into that, where people are like, man, I, I thought this was going on, or I've been coaching people this way. And they're like, now I'm kind of seeing this or this elucidated that anything that where it pulled back kind of the curtain on like, Ooh, maybe the stuff I thought was happening isn't happening. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it happens a lot because we obviously we have data that's objective and transparent and, uh, and you know, like anything that's, that's, that, that requires, um, well, that, that forces a bit of change or, uh, offers a new perspective. You know, when we, when we presented this, you know, from a psychological perspective with new information, uh, that, and it's a gap, depends on how big that gap is between what you're taught, what you believe and what, and, and what the new information presents itself. If that information is like way too big, um, we, we know from the psychological, uh, uh, th or, or, or theory is that, you know, we will be afraid of it, like afraid of the change, like, no, no, or we'll say, we'll re immediately reject it. Say it can't be right. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's not what it's, 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 uh, it's really stepping on my toes and what I've been, what I, what I believe. And some people, unfortunately, we, we do see, see that, like, that's, that's the situation. And it's going to take, you know, a bit more time to peel away each layer of the onion. Um, and, you know, some real re-education, re new education to, for them to really understand, like, how do we bring this in and how can we actually reshape our thinking and way of thinking of, about certain paradigms, like we've discussed today, whether it's symmetry, cadence, uh, or impact. Um, but we have majority of people, therapists and clinicians that are like, this is changing my view, but in a way that it's bringing all the pieces, puzzle pieces together. Um, and uh, it's more the question is not not, not like okay uh, is, this, is this really um, is this information good or bad? It's about how is it going to you know adapt my clinical reasoning, um, and how can I do this now practically that I don't um, start looking like a not like a fool in front of my uh, patients, <laughs> but how can I use this in a way that I will get to the desired uh, result, the key objective with my patients and athletes. Um, now that we have this data at hand and that's where we, you know, this is, this is a lot of exciting developments and in, in bringing data into clinical reasoning um, and that rapid experimentation that I was uh, talking about a bit earlier is, you know, finding, you know, finding the right cue that will work. You know, some people might not respond well to that, you know, try land softer or change your cadence, but testing it out really quickly, really efficiently, and getting to that right cue. And of course, 
there are a lot of cues to try out. <laughs> um, and on the one hand, you have a lot of things you can try. On the other hand, you only have so much time with your patient and athletes. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where the, the, the exciting, you know, the cutting edge technology is not coming in. Um, more is, is how we can find those right cues as quickly as possible um, using using Run Easy as a tool, and um, and yeah, and, and 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 rather than pushing back when you get data that doesn't doesn't match your theory of mechanism of how this injury was happening, but rather to see it as another perspective and uh, to reflect on it and find a new understanding of. You know, what is this data meaning? Um, you know, where is this coming from? What's what's causing these asymmetries or these impact changes? Well, I was just trying to pull up a research article. Um, I'm searching through Evernote and of course typing in gate brings up like a hundred articles in there for me, but we know that we can change running gate, right? By you know, intervention, whether it's coaching cues. Uh I just kind of have a curious question for myself because you're the you know obviously heavier on the assessment side gathering data but i'm sure that you've looked into plenty of the interventional side as well yeah how much or what's your quick thought on how we should approach changing gate because i've been on both sides of the fence of man walking gate in particular and running gate are very um they're happening for a reason as they're presented, right? It, these are things yeah. that your body is doing because this is the best manifestation of, you know, neurologic uh, output versus what the environment's giving uh, that person on an input basis. But how, what's your thought on like coaching a runner versus like doing other things, right? Corrective exercises, improving ankle range of motion, things like that to actually have a change in a gait, which I know there's both, but do you feel yeah. like we should lean heavier one way or the, or the other or is it just n equals one what somebody needs yeah and that's, that's a fantastic question and i think there's multiple strategies of, of, of achieving improvements in gates and 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 getting those outcomes um i think up until now we've we just haven't had the ability to really tap into corrective or biofeedback gate retraining properly because we've we haven't, yeah, we haven't had the tools to to do it on an objective basis. So I think there's a lot of potential there to bring it in more. Um, but I, to a real certain extent, believe that you know, we if it ain't broken, don't try fix it. <laughs> you know, like that the kind of analogy, like you know, don't try to change your running gait if, if you don't have a problem. But what we also see is like you don't know if there's a problem if you, unless you've kind of made an assessment. Even if there's no injury present, there could be. Uh, a previous injury that's a compensation and those compensations patterns that we don't always see with the naked eye that are lingering and are, you know, creeping up on, on the athletes or the patients. So I think it comes down to uh, identifying, is there a compensation pattern present? Uh, and is that compensation pattern, is that going to be a driver in uh, an injury in the, in the coming coming weeks or months, um, and if we can if we can identify whether that is the case, if it really is a compensatory pattern, I think we want to be fixing the correcting the compensatory pattern rather than just fixing or changing a global running gait for a certain reason. Um, you know, using a certain cue. I think the cue should only come if we really identify a, a specific compensatory pattern that we think get okay, this is going to play a role in an injury in the, in the future.
um, or is playing a role now as you come as the athlete comes back from from an injury. Um, and how do we and how do we assist that athlete? You know, whether it's to offload or whether it's to improve the, the stability uh, of their of their other runner or improve the, the symmetry gradually. Um, it's yeah, I think to a certain extent you need to find a a compensatory pattern before just just going straight into it. Um, but always combining it with that uh, yeah, the exercise therapy and proprioceptive and neuromuscular control and not not neglecting what we know works. <laughs> um, but to add a new puzzle piece, a new tool in the tool set, um, because now we can we can identify, assess um, whether there is a compensatory pattern and see whether certain cues can help fix that. But I guess you could approach it both ways with a tool like this of one, you use these as your objective measure or you check your work with this, right? So it's kind yeah. of, well, you may still go do stuff in the clinic and that's the way that you approach it and then you can check it or you're literally using these parameters on the fly with coaching and queuing and seeing what's changing there um, or a little bit of both based on what's going on. But I think you kind of, <clears throat> you touched on the, the question that every coach or therapist in the world really has a hard time answering is when do you intervene, right? Like yeah. we yeah. don't have an injury or there's no pain, right? I guess those are two different things, reposition of pain, and you can still have tissue pathology. We all know that, but like, when do you intervene? And I always bring up, if you're familiar with the Kenyan Prisca Jeptu, um, she's like the queen of what we would say is like terrible mechanics, just from a visual standpoint, right? Massive valgus yeah. load and all these things, but she's won what New York, Paris, Turin, London. She won all these marathons. She until she got busted for PEDs was pretty injury free. But you look at somebody just looking again. We don't have parameters, and we've talked about that already. You know, when do you intervene? This is the question that's tough. But at least, yeah. You know, now we're having the conversation around objective data measures that are from large, you know, aggregations of runners. And then, um, you know, I guess you still have to make the call on a personal basis of like, do you change things? Because like you said, you'll see people outside of that 10% uh, symmetry differential that do just fine, or that's ideal for them. And I mean, that's where you have to take your, all three legs of the tripod of treatment, right? Uh, evidence, uh, personal experience, and then, yeah. um, you know, basically the, uh, the person in front of you and kind of say, well, yeah, that's what I'm doing. But, um, yeah, that's a tough question to answer for anybody. Yeah. And you, you, you I mean, you have to have all three pillars of evidence-based practice. Um, and, and we, and, and I personally believe that, you know, you don't just having objective gate analysis should not be the one, you know, the one priority. It's just got to be included in the loop. And included in the, the feedback loop and and used as a quick way to get another dimension that we previously didn't have um, and help help steer and guide that, that clinical reasoning process on an individual level as as as, as, as what we strive for yeah yeah because i'm sure like you said it is another piece of the puzzle but you don't want to open up pandora's box on just hey yeah the, like make all these perfect like that's not the goal either because you have to take into a, i mean everything into account right yeah. um yeah. well again we, you and i can talk about all the nerdy running stuff for literally hours and some of this stuff has no you know black or white answer it's very much 
Yeah. You get data, you see what changes and, you know, you got to make a decision as a, a coach or a therapist or, a, you know, researcher at the end of the day. Um, in terms of what's coming up, you guys have, well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about something that maybe goes outside of, you know, uh, distance running or running in general, which, um, can be the acceleration deceleration data that you guys are starting to look at more and more. Um, what, why are you guys looking at that? First of all, why is this important? Um, whether it's for runner or other athletes? Well, what we see is that, you know, the ability to de decelerate especially is, is a really, you know, really important for lots of athletes. You're looking at, you know, football players, hockey players, basketball players, um, the ability to, you know, decelerate after an acceleration. Uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a way that's coordinated, in a way that has just distributed loads, in a way that prepares you for that next step. Um, and it's becoming, you know, it's a critical evaluation criteria. And there's some amazing research that's coming up now that's, uh, you know, from uh, Damien Harper and, and, and his and colleagues that is really showing how, you know, how important it is that you have the biomechanical ability and capacity and coordination to, to decelerate properly. And um, it's been a massively overlooked component of the return to play component of, uh, of, 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 of uh, athlete rehabilitation and getting them back on the pitch and knowing when they're ready. You know, um, we often use, often it's been used as like the biodex, the isokinetic forces. And we know that's not a functional way of testing, but it's because it's called standard and we know that we have measures of strength. We know that it doesn't include the neuromuscular and coordination aspects and the dynamic aspect. Um, and so we see a huge opportunity you know, through our wearable technology. And it's what we've been developing in the last uh, couple of months with uh, Dr. Bart D uh, Dingen in, in Belgium, who's, uh, he specializes in ACL re rehabilitation you know, of, the, of cruciate ligaments. And we, yeah, we've, we've co-developed an algorithm that gets the biomechanics of each step and how you accelerate and decelerate and the yeah the compensation strategies that we are identifying are uh, really really interesting um, specifically the ones that are offloading they're not breaking on their uh, the injured limb side where they had that ACL reconstruction and we can use that now as more objective criteria in that final phase when you say, okay, is my athlete ready to go into explosive change of directions? Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's a really exciting new direction. We're uh, evolving our uh, product. No, no pun intended, right? Different direction. Um, yeah. I mean, exactly. we were kind of, we were talking about this a little bit before that uh, I was listening to a podcast between Dr. Brett Winchester and Brad Scott, who's the head of, uh, uh, performance for the Atlanta Braves. And he was saying that the, one of the biggest things they look for, um, in terms of players coming back in spring training from an injury prevention standpoint is, uh, D cell acceleration work because of the prevalence of hamstring injuries with base running. Um, and he said, that's the thing that's going to take most people out during the season. So they're more concerned about acceleration, deceleration, instead of just straight out, like, how much you've been running because like you could go run. And like you said, it, there's a lot of components there. So I think that's very cool. And then um, again, another objective uh, measure for return to play just in general, if you're in the clinical setting, 
um, as those parameters become more prevalent and used with run easy. I mean, it's, you know, one thing to do, you know, uh, box step down tests and single leg hops and all these things, but like, you know, getting another objective measure, uh, should make you feel safe because I'll speak from personal experience. Um, you know, there's somebody coming back, like I've had a couple MPFL surgeries, um, people that had partial tears and ended up with full tears. And it's like, the better you can get your RTP criteria, the, at least the better you sleep at night. So if something does happen, you're like, well, they pass, I mean, stuff happens, right. But at least you're like, yeah, I had all of these parameters that they actually passed. And, you know, because I've had injuries where like, man, did I test everything out adequately? Like how could I have done something better? So I think if you get more concrete there, um, you know, just kind of puts your conscience at ease a little bit for sure. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. And uh, I mean, if you think about it, if you wanted to get these kind of this kind of informational or objective measures, uh, traditionally you would need to line up. I don't know how many force plates. I mean, we we we, we measuring the forces for every step in that XL cell and uh, you would need you know, a whole highway of, of force plates to be able to get each step. And we see that this with every single step in acceleration and deceleration has a completely different functional role. Uh, you know, each one is is pre- either preparing for deceleration or is now the planted leg at the end. Um, and either how many steps you use to decelerate, uh, the timing between it. Uh, there's so many different strategies that are, you know, going to help you either be more efficient uh, at sidestepping afterwards or be prepared for that situation when you have a defender. Um, and so you need to be able to measure every single step. And if you only have one step, one force plate, you're missing so much of the picture. You've got one little snapshot and everything else is ignored. Um, and the profiles that we, we that we'll be able to develop now or create for each step left and right and how the forces evolve uh, and the curves of and how we decelerate, uh, it, it really sheds some interesting light on on how each player is protecting or is now has the ability to decelerate efficiently and uh, properly. Um, and uh, yeah, it just adds another puzzle piece in the, in the RTP um, criteria. And I think that's where we want to start moving towards is um, what would be yeah good RTP criteria using this data um, for certain types of injuries coming back, coming back to play and to peak performance. Well, and uh, I mean, I find myself telling people all the time, you know, that's the bulk of hamstring injuries, uh, patellar tendinopathy, all these things are coming from the inability to decelerate in an efficient manner, um, or just one, you know, bout of hard deceleration that's not, you know, maybe it's under duress or fatigue or poor neuromuscular coordination and see a biceps femoris strain sprain or something like that. But, um, so yeah, it'll be interesting for me to play around with that as that becomes a little more polished within the technology. Um, is there anything else that you guys have coming up? I think you mentioned that you guys have a possibly this remote monitoring system where we'll be able to do a little more um, out of clinic work. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So what we would, you know, what we'd like to um, improve is the ability to, you know, like have that full kind of say like biological biomechanical passport of your day of your athletes and not just when you see them uh, in, a, in your clinic or when you meet up with them on the track um, but to see the evolution from you know from from run to run and be able to give them feedback 
uh, remote, completely remotely when a red flag is detected, a compensatory pattern is detected, that you can give them a consultation virtually from, a, you know, from anywhere in the world. Um, and that's a technology we are uh, looking forward to developing as well, is that ability that you know, your clients, your um, athletes can come in, you can give them a run easy system uh, to use for a couple of weeks so that you can make sure you, you don't miss a single step virtually from, from the training um, and seeing, getting a, getting a much more bigger picture and detailed view on the natural training environment. And if they have a, a particular injury, say it be you know, telephoneal pain syndrome, you know, what, one risk factor we often know is that downhill running triggers that, that, uh, that, that, that pain and, and the injury. And then being able to link an environmental risk factor by looking at the data and saying, ah, we see that only when you're hitting the downhills, you have that huge, you know, high impact load on that knee or that, that, that side. Um, and, uh, we can now have actionable information. We can do actionable things about that, modify the training program because we have information from where you're actually training. And, uh, that's where you can kind of intervene in, uh, you know, in an early onset kind of way. Uh, detecting those red flags in a smart way uh, before the problem really escalates and snowballs. Well, and I'm seeing this again, being in the trail running world. Um, I mean, so many, uh, you know, patellar tendon off the issues with downhill and it gets to the point where, you know, that's what takes people out of a race. And um, some of that is the sport. I mean, is it, it's not the most natural thing in the world to run a hundred miles on a clip, but um if we can shore up some things throughout training that become, you know, chronic issues and you can help people, you know, accomplish their goals. So, uh, that's something we're going to be doing is, uh, putting run easy monitors on people that are actually in race scenarios and just kind of seeing, you know, when they're not, you know, they should be well-rested tapered in ideal world, best shape, uh, of their training. And then go see what happens from a mechanical standpoint during that race. I think it'll be really cool for me to see that. Um, well, yeah, I think we tackled a lot. Hopefully we answered more questions. Well, no, I'll take that back. Hopefully we created more questions for clinicians and coaches than we answer, because that's actually what we should be doing, whether it's research or through technology, not, you know, giving people answers. Um, so hopefully we did that, made people think a little bit differently about maybe some of the, uh, dogmas surrounding, you know, running, running gate analysis, things like that. Um, any last, uh, words for us about, uh, you know, run easy, what's coming, uh, anything like that? Yeah, I'll just maybe go back to that running quality score and, and say that we're really, really excited about this, uh, twofold. Well, firstly, it summarizes information, all the metrics into one score. So you have a, an ability to really know, is the improvement happening in an overall, you know, in a very quick way. And secondly, a way to, you know, sometimes we have, you know, biomechanics especially is, can be very complicated to the athletes or the patients and trying to explain and disseminate, you know, a whole biomechanical mechanism into, you know, what is really going on and what can we do about it is, is can be very, very difficult, uh, for a lot of clinicians. And, and, uh, what we believe we have now is ability to kind of, uh, have a great visualization tool that's appealing to the end user, to the runner, to the patient, so that they can learn and they can, you can actually educate them um, so that they understand what's happening and um, they know more about their bodies and how, you know, how, how it functions in a dynamic way and what happens when they run 
And uh, that's what we're really excited about bringing out this run easy running quality score is uh, to be able to identify those weak links and to help the communication between patients and practitioner. Perfect. Well, I've liked uh, or enjoyed uh, using the product so far and uh, it's been great, you know, learning from you uh, over the past couple of months and in particular today. So thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for putting out great tech and continuing to kind of push into the profession a little bit further. And uh, for anybody that's interested in learning more about uh, the run easy tech, I'll put links to the website. Uh, you can find them on social media. Um, yeah. And then uh yeah, I just thank you again. And I'm excited to see what uh, Run Easy's got coming in the future and how it's going to help my practice and other people's practices like me. Great. Thank you so much for your time, Bo. It's been uh, fantastic chatting to you. And uh, these are passionate topics about. And it's, uh, yeah, it's great to push, push, the, push the, uh, the envelope a bit on um, yeah, bringing tech into practice and bridging the, that gap. Awesome. Well, thanks again, man. Thank you so much.